Hello and welcome to AA Beyond Belief Podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today I'll be speaking with Ben B. about steps 6 and 7, which read, We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. Now, how are a couple of atheists going to do anything with these steps? Hey, Ben, how you doing? Pretty good, John. How have you been? Excellent. Nice to have you here again. Talk about the steps. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. We've got, I think, I thought that we might be able to cover steps six and seven uh, in one podcast, uh, but we'll see. You never know what happens once we start talking about these things. Um, I was reading the steps last night from the 12 and 12, and I have kind of an interesting history with the 12 and 12. You know, I've been reading these books for you know, 28 years. And for the most of the time that I've been in the program, I used to really like the 12 and 12. I used to think that it w- it went a lot more in depth than the big book. And I felt that it covered a lot of, you know, um, psychological aspects of the steps. But now that I read them, I mean, it's really hard to um, find anything here that that doesn't have to do with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really difficult to read. Um, so anyway, step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Um, what do you think about that step? Uh, ben, do you go ahead and give me your experience and thoughts. You know, the first thing I noticed about it is it kind of reminds me of uh, step two. It doesn't even sound like a step at all. It sounds more like a declaration of what's where you get to. You know, like we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. It's It's almost like to paraphrase that, it's like, are you sure you're really ready to do something about this, you know, or are you ready to change? Um, I don't, I don't know. Just in, in wording, it doesn't even sound like a step, but that's probably trying to pick it apart. Um, I think you and I have talked about this before, but it, but it is, it's about, to me, I, I look at it as like, it's a warning. Okay. Here comes some real action of change you're going to have to take part in. You know, we've just got done defining, for lack of a better word, our character defects. And now are you ready to do something about it? You know, I, I don't believe. The book kind of doubles down on itself, too, or I should say doubles back on itself. It's like it tells you that God can remove them, but then it also tells you later that you have to do work. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I had a tough time reading through this again, um, uh, this week as well. So I'm with you there, yeah. but it, you know, yeah, I, I wrote down when I was taking notes, like, are you really sure you want to do this? That's, that's what I think of when I hear step six. Yeah. This, the, the uh, these steps, um, could actually, um, be used as evidence that there really isn't a God. Because anytime you go to AA meeting, when they talk about step six and seven, everybody always says, well, God hasn't removed my character defects. God has not. He never removes your character defects. So it makes maybe they should start thinking, hmm, why isn't God removing my character defects? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Could it be that there isn't? I don't know. Who knows? Anyway. You'll hear people people (laughs) use the language from this 12 by 12, too, that will say like, oh, I must love that character defect so much that I hold on to it. You know, that was some of the language in here, too. It's like. Right. It's all, it's always back on you, bad human, hanging on to the defect. <laughs> if only you would let go, then God could remove it. Well, yeah. I thought God was all powerful and could <laughs> right, do whatever. Yeah. But I don't anyway, know. Anyway, we're using logic. We shouldn't. Yes, do that. yes. So. <laughs> But anyway, um, the way I, I saw the steps from a secular perspective anyway, because I had when I started writing them out, and I can't remember exactly how I worded it, but pretty much the way that you said it is I became willing to um, change these th- these things that I learned about myself. I became willing to build character and improve 
And step seven to me was just being persistent um, throughout my life with being willing to work on these things. And for me, that doesn't mean anything other than just being um, aware of that, that I need to grow as a human being and to avail myself to the help that I, that is out there, you know, whether that be, you know, a counselor, a therapist or an AA meeting or a sponsor or whatever, just to know that, you know, I don't need to um, go through life alone um, and um, and I'm not perfect. And I, I can certainly, um, you know, continue to build character and try to be a better person. Absolutely. I, that's well stated. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and I, you know, the steps bring you this far. It's like they they assume that we've just been totally blind to everything about ourselves up until we walk in the rooms, I guess, and partake in this. And so I suppose exactly like you said, this is the part that says we need to, like you said, in a secular sense, it's time to start actively working on ourselves. It's, um, you know, the 12 by 12 even says this separates the men from the boys. Now, all that old lingo I don't know about, but it, but it really is. This is what it comes down to. It's not necessarily about the drinking. It's about taking a look at the things. And the, uh, the 12 by 12 even said it at, I can't remember if it was six or seven, but that um, it said something about the defects that have led to our drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it kind of goes back and forth on blaming alcohol and not blaming alcohol. And, um, you know, that, that, when I read that, I really liked that part too. So it's, it is, it's, this is engaging in the change and staying engaged in the change. When I look at all my efforts to either control my drinking or stop drinking before I came to AA, what I basically did was I got to a place and then I quit doing what I was doing that was working for me. Mm-hmm. And a lot, and I see a parallel with a lot of those things as to what we're asked, asked to do in AA. I mean, I think they're the exact same things, but I think my participation in AA and ongoing participation just keeps me on top of these things, keeps me being aware, and then I can do something about them. And I can, the book also talks about humility, I think, in step seven, mm-hmm. the 12 by 12 does. And I can catch myself before I get humiliated, you know. Mm-hmm. Before I do something stupid and then have to find humility that way, I can I can catch myself when I'm getting a little loud of myself. Yeah. Well, the women are lucky uh, since this step is just that is the one that separates the men from the boys. I guess the women don't have to worry about this one, do they? No, no. <laughs> You're no. off the hook on this, ladies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is about being a man. That's yeah. What this step is about. Yeah. I think you know I was looking at the bottom of the first page of step six too, and it talks about all these um, obsessions being lifted straight off me, and and it's I mean I I don't I I do doubt that that's true for people. I think it helps people to sometimes make it sound magical like that, but I wonder if when people come into the rooms and they've been working on things, if if they haven't immediately changed like, you know, like that, it's it's it can be kind of disheartening. And I it just it has not been my experience. Um, Those character defects or things they need to work on, they're they're slowly changing. You know, we hear the old line that we didn't get sick overnight. We're not going to get better overnight. That's been more my experience. And and the magical thinking, I think, can be dangerous. Um, It's to me, it's the same type of thinking that got us in trouble in the first place. It's like that instant gratification thinking of I can take a drink and feel better right now, or I can actually take time, work on my crap, put in some investment over time and get better slowly. Because really, if you look at it as a disease concept and a brain disease, it's, it's that instant gratification that's the problem. You know, we keep putting off dealing with what we have to deal with and, uh, you know, it just keeps building up. Yeah. So it's, it's a slow process I've found. Yeah. 
That makes sense to me. I also like the discussion in there about character building. And I always did kind of like that. Um, it kind of made sense to me because if you, if you're really, if you go through the steps and you're really honest about yourself and you find that, you know, that you've got some things to work on. I mean, I'm not saying that we're bad characters, but there's nothing wrong with building character. There's nothing wrong with improving your character. And, and I think that's a worthy thing to do. Um, I'm not so certain that it's really necessary to do to, to, um, stay sober but it doesn't hurt mm-hmm. um you know i i like to think that it's a it's a good way of being honest with myself about you know what kind of a person am i how am i treating other people am i am i ethical um am i kind am i am i um caring about others you know uh, and to what extent am i so mm-hmm. i kind of agree with that and i also kind of like the concept i found it interesting anyway that and we've talked about this actually we talked about it in step four i think that our problem was um, allowing our natural instincts to take on more importance than um, we should give them. Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines, which I thought I think is kind of interesting. I can't remember exactly how they they worded that. No, that's pretty close, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Here it says. Since most of us are born with an abundance of natural desires, it isn't strange that we often let these far exceed their intended purpose. When they drive us blindly, or we willfully demand that they supply us with more satisfaction or pleasures than are possible or do us, that is the point at which we depart from the degree of perfection that God wishes for us here on earth. See, they could they could have left off that last sentence, but, but mm. that whole part about, um, yeah, you know, we're... I guess the point that it's trying to make is this isn't a matter of being a good person or a bad person. This is a matter of being a human being, an animal, an organism that yeah. had that, that, that has evolved, um, with these natural, um, instincts for survival, for reproduction, for companionship, for all these different natural, um, instincts that we have just as, as, as human animals. And sometimes, you know, we can get carried away with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, um, you know, one, one benefit of being a human being is we can stop and think and have some degree of control over, over these, over these things. And it's kind of helpful for me to understand. And I learned this from steps, you know, f- four and five that, you know, I have a real strong need for security and mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that. I'm a weak person or bad or anything like that. It just means that probably all animals <laughs> have a need for security. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, um, and I, I might, I might take that need for security to the extreme. Um, and it can, it can hurt my relationships with other people. Absolutely. That's good to be yeah. aware of that. No, it's, you're right on about that. And, you know, to bounce off of what you said into step six and the 12 by 12, it, they talk about defying their instinctive desire for self-preservation. They seem bent on, upon self-destruction, talking yeah. about us destroying our lives with alcohol. And, you know, if you look at the science of the brain, it makes sense. Because I know I've said this on another one of our podcasts, but the part of your brain that lies with these instincts for this self-preservation and security and safety and all that stuff is also the part of the brain that, that believes starts to believe that it needs alcohol. Mm-hmm. So when that starts taking precedent and overriding all those other perceived needs, I mean, that's where the chronicity of alcohol comes and it, and it becomes less, well, I don't think it ever is a moral 
a moral thing, but you know, mm-hmm. our books flips back and forth between disease, allergy, and then moral tone. So it's, we sit there and, and the book sometimes says like, oh, you have let your, your need for self survival be overridden by your choice to drink. But it's, but it is science. It is science that, I mean, that's why it, 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 it just makes sense. But it's like the, the book kind of angles it as towards like, it's going to shame us into mm-hmm. waking up to that. But if, if it truly is a disease, it's, it's not, it's not that easy, right? Yeah. So you mentioned that before. Can you explain that again? It's like uh, the science behind that is about how you're. Can you explain that again? Yeah. The part of your brain that that becomes more physically dependent on alcohol is very near your instincts or where your instincts lie is what they think they've decided and determined so far. Okay. Obviously, science is always evolving. But and then if you think about it, the front, the prefrontal cortex part of your front of your brain is what your instincts. Think of it as like a lightning bolt or a message shoots out towards that prefrontal cortex from your instincts, like uh, mate with this person, have sex now, eat, consume this, that, and then your prefrontal cortex is where everything that you learn um, is kind of not everything that you learn, but it's like where your morals lie or the part of your brain that says maybe that isn't a good idea. You know, it, it like provides the bounce back from that instinct part of your brain. So when that when the instinct part of your brain becomes so physically dependent on alcohol, it kind of overrides that. But also the effect that alcohol has on our system is the first thing it does is it numbs out that prefrontal cortex. Okay. So that's why we tend to make bad decisions, even if you're not uh, an alcoholic. That's why you tend to make bad decisions when you're drunk. You drive home because yeah. it's that part of your brain is numbed out that says it's not a yeah. good idea to drive home completely shit-faced. Absolutely. Or, you know, I mean, not to ever justify anyone taking advantage of someone else, but sure. it's also why bad things happen sexually sure. interact with people at times too. So that makes sense. Yeah it, yeah, it totally does. And it's also the last part of your brain that develops. Um, okay. They say your prefrontal cortex isn't really fully developed or that frontal cortex isn't fully developed until you're 25. So they would say, ideally, all of us would stay away from any mind altering chemical until you're 25. Because mm-hmm. it can interfere with the development of that frontal part of your brain that says this isn't such a good idea. Okay. Which it's also probably why people who start to drink at a younger age are more apt to become alcoholics. Yeah, yeah. So you've you've influenced that frontal part of your brain and its development by by introducing Man. chemicals into your body too soon. That's scary. That that's actually my case. And I, I bet you anything. I, I'm you know my I was born in 1962, and back then um, you know people didn't know that you couldn't drink when you were pregnant. <laughs> Yeah. I would be surprised if I was having some as a fetus, but yeah, yeah I started drinking so young. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember, well, I must have been at least eight, you know, uh, my, my parents would have these parties and, um, I would go downstairs in the morning after the party and I would drink the leftover glasses of scotch or bourbon or whatever mm-hmm. that was left out from the night before. That's really odd behavior for an eight year old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I did. And also I would smoke the cigarettes that were hanging around the house. Yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of weird, but um, but yeah, I did. You know, at a at a very early age, I I kind of latched on to alcohol. But of course, I didn't drink all that time until I got into high school. But mm-hmm. man, it was def it definitely took a hold of me very almost immediately. And um, so by the time I was twenty five, it was game over. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, as I was reading through the 12 by 12, also, I kind of noticed it, it made me think of how I said this earlier, the goal is to just stay working on our issues. And there's so much all or nothing thinking throughout our literature, too. And sometimes we need to work on getting rid of that kind of thinking in our life. Um, I'll, I'll use like a diet, for example, like if I'm going to start eating better, um, 
for some reason, I always seem to tell myself I'll start on Monday. Mm -hmm. You know, I did that with my drinking too. You know, after the weekend, I'll start not drinking on Monday. And then as soon as if I drank, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, I'd be like, well, screw it. I'll start again on next Monday. And then it'd be like party on the rest of the week. Mm -hmm. And and I can have a tendency to do that with food now too. So, so I think the goal is to get out of that all or nothing thinking, whereas like, what's so magical about Monday, right? Right. Or, you know, and it's about just staying engaged and getting better and growing and changing. And if I fall off the wagon or if I cheat on my diet, I'm not doing myself or anything any favors by just mm-hmm. giving myself the justification rationalization to keep to keep doing what I'm doing. So I, th- I think some of that all or nothing thinking is what needs to be addressed, too. Yeah. And maybe this step doesn't do a very good job with that in some ways, because I, and we've talked, I remember in my old group, we used to talk about this a lot is that they always say, um, in this step, you really want to shoot to have all defects removed. You want perfection is Mm -hmm. what you're really shooting for, even though you know you aren't going to get it. Right. But they used to say at my, my old home group that if you want to make a million, if you want to make a million dollars, don't set your goal to make a million, set your goal to make five million or whatever that, Mm -hmm. you know, to that, that way, if you don't meet your goal, it's something, some, and back then it used to make sense to me. So that's what they would say is that, you know, even though you might not have all of your defects removed, shoot to have them all removed. And that way you'll be, you know, that much further ahead. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I, can, I can get I can get behind that thinking on some level. But but again, it's it's that all or nothing thinking. And it's it's I don't know. It's something about it is just about getting staying engaged in the pro, in the pro, in the process of all this, I think. Yeah. And maybe the whole idea of having these things removed isn't a good idea anyway. That's that's a weird concept because that's the way they're actually talking. You have a deity who is going to remove these things. Right. We don't really see things that way. The way we see things is that we have we have character traits. Um, we have things about us that we want to improve. And we ourselves have to work on those things throughout our lifetime. And we know that we're never going to have these things removed, not going to be taken away. I mean, we're always going to have these desires or wants or needs. It's just a matter of understanding what those things are and putting things into perspective. It's not a matter of removing them. What right. are we talking about anyway? Right. It is kind right. of weird. Yeah. And the, the whole, I mean, shooting to have things improve in our life and improve ourselves is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, again, not everything's going to change, but it but it's I think it's it's more about the commitment of it, right? It's like saying, "Hey, what do you have to change to stay sober?" Well, sometimes people will say everything, but the, I don't think the text actually says they ask. You need to be willing to change anything and everything. Yeah. It doesn't say that you have to. But yeah. but when we're shooting for it, it's 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 like an act of commitment, I think. And I suppose the way this step works for people that believe in God, it's not my job to judge it, but I'm going to, is because for some people, that is an act of commitment. It's saying, I'm giving over. Right take it from me, that's what allows them to give something up. So so I don't, you know, if that's what somebody needs to do to believe that this this change can happen, more power to them. But right. the yeah. book even warns us it, it doesn't alleviate us from our responsibility of taking action. I can see that. And and those people have the, per, the freedom that they exercise all the time to express that in the meetings, whereas you and I would have a difficult time um, expressing our view of these steps, which is, does not involve letting go to a deity, but some 
somehow just, you know, letting go um, mm-hmm. without having to turn it over to some damn God. But um, yeah, yep. no, I hear you. Well, and it talks to on uh, page 66 and 67 um, talks about what we must recognize now is that we exalt in some of our defects. We really love them. Who, for example, doesn't like to feel just a little superior to the next fellow or even quite a lot superior? Isn't it true that we like to let greed masquerade as ambition? To think of liking lust seems impossible. But how many men and women speak love with their lips and believe what they say so that they can hide lust in a dark corner of their minds? Man, Bill was really obsessed with sex on some level, I think. And even while staying within conventional bounds, many people have to admit that their imaginary sex excursions are apt to be all dressed up as dreams of romance. Now, I wrote down in my book, there's some truth here. It's like there there is that thing about we like to feel superior to the next fellow. And I, I do think in recovery, it's about finding our authentic walk and what we want to be ours and and what we want to be without having to bounce that off of a comparison with someone else. I mm-hmm. I can get behind that part of this this saying for sure, or mm-hmm. uh, this part of the 12 by 12. But then it's also, it's like thought police. It's like, well, I know those men and women speak of love, but they have lust in their hearts. You know, it's just like, I don't know. Do we need to judge all that? Yeah, yeah. That's the whole concept of lust. Um, I I don't know. I I guess you. I don't know. That's I, I'm with you on that. I yeah. I, I I don't. That's a that's probably borrowed from religion. In fact, yeah. I was kind of going through and highlighting some of these things. That, and lust is mentioned a couple of times. Gluttony is mentioned. Anger is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, sloth or procrastination. These are some of the basic basic things. Um, and I'm sure there's some religious you know, back background behind looking at these particular things. Not to say that there isn't probably some benefit to, to looking at these behaviors. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I could relate to, I guess, is the self-righteous anger mm-hmm. and, and how dangerous that could be. I, I can kind of, I can buy into that, I think, because I know it's really difficult. You know, um, if, if I, Anger for me can almost be like a drug because it produces a certain energy within me if I really allow myself to get worked up about something. And if that anger later becomes a resentment where I'm constantly thinking about it and reliving that feeling, it begins to distort my perception of reality. And it begins to influence my relationships with other people who aren't even connected with that anger. Um, and it also puts me in a kind of a weird spot where if I'm that far out of touch with reality, it's not that that big of a stretch to pick up a drink. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of my feeling about it. The self-righteous anger is so difficult because, damn it, I'm right. This mm-hmm. person's done something wrong to me. And right. um, it's kind of hard to shut that off, you know, yeah. um, because it, it, to a certain extent, you know, I like being right. And I like to 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 um replay that in my head or even in conversation with other people to let them know you know how right I was and how I showed this person whatever but that but still I have that emotion going on that's that's knotting me up inside so I think it's still I mean it's something I need to look at and mm-hmm. um and be careful and, and not allow myself to get too wrapped up in that so what if I'm right right you know, big deal you know let it go let don't yeah. don't have to keep reliving the fight well and I don't know about you but that's the way I feel sometimes when I run into these uh, discussions with the dogmatists either online or or in person, it's like I want to tell them how right I am and how wrong they are. Um, I, 
I don't even know that I want to. I feel like that's what they want to do to me. I just want to have the right to have my own interpretation about this stuff and my own experience. But it's it feels like for many of them, if, if my experience is different than theirs, then I get accused of either not being a real alcoholic or not working the steps the right way or I didn't have someone walk me through it the right way or something like that. And it's, it seems like, I don't know, the dogmatists seem to want to pigeonhole and, and make this doorway so very narrow yeah. into AA that it's like, I just, I don't know. It's like they, they want to control who's in there to keep it pure or something. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, I just don't get it. I get very frustrated and I do get yeah. that self-righteous anger going on and I need to watch it. It is weird. Um, and Facebook in particular, because there's so many AA, um, secret AA groups on Facebook and, um, oh boy. Um, yeah. and I think, I don't know if it's, if, if what I'm seeing on Facebook is what is spilling over from the rooms of AA or vice versa, if it's Facebook is, is face, is Facebook conversations um, filtering their way into the rooms of AA or is it the AA stuff or maybe it's a little bit of both. But I have seen like some crazy stuff on Facebook where people get this real narrow interpretation of the steps and, and saying that people aren't real alcoholics and don't belong. But unfortunately, and I see that on Facebook all the time, but I've also seen it happen in real life in AA too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it makes me angry as well. Um, yeah. and like you say, I just have to, and, and Facebook, it's one thing. You can sit there and argue with people and I guess it's almost entertainment. But when you're in the rooms of AA, you're talking about people's lives. Right. And it's a whole different thing. And you don't want to mess around with that, I don't think. Yeah, the Facebook and online groups are kind of a shit show because I think anybody can say whatever. And, you know, they can make up multiple person and multiple accounts. You don't even know who the hell you're talking to, really. No, no way. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it does get heated in there. And I need to be careful to not think that that's reality in the rooms because I had coffee with a guy a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about that and just AA in general and the the fundamentalists. And he said, yeah, but that's a really small number of people in AA. And you know, for the most part, he is right. But then uh, him and I got into a discussion just about oh, yeah. some of the concerns about AA and things like that. And it just like shut down the conversation right away. We were, having, we we're having a really nice conversation. And as soon as I brought up any doubt about any dogma in AA, I mean, it, it was a very light doubt. I just wanted to have a discussion about it. And it was like, wow. I mean, I felt like I was threatening his sobriety just to even bring up that there's something about AA that might not be the most great thing in the world. There are a lot more of them. Um the dogmatists and, and just the, if, I don't even like these Pacific group people. I don't know if I'd call them dogmatists, but they're definitely cultish. Maybe they are dogmatists. Do these people, I guess they must have a real, I don't know what I have to understand these people a little bit better, these Pacific groups. But anyway, I was talking to this guy last night from Japan and he says the Pacific group made a, has made a big presence over there in Japan. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And the whole, um, fellowship in Japan is kind of split and you, you've got the back to basics people. You've got the Pacific group people, and then you have just your regular, you know, milk toast kind of AA, AA folks. Mm-hmm. But even in Japan, those Pacific group people have have um, infiltrated. Um, it's almost like they're it's almost like they they're doing it on purpose. Like they have to spread their brand of AA around. I wonder if it's like an intentional thing or or, or not. It's weird, I find. Yeah, I don't know. So much for uh, attraction rather than promotion, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's a whole, there is a bunch of that out there. I don't know why I, th- I can't. 
I think over here it really parallels with what's going on politically in our world right now too, and the the fear over this next election and some of the people with the yeah. you know return to want my country back and make right. America great again. I think there's there's an underlying fear. I mean, different things in our literature will even say you know AA is just a reflection of the culture that you yeah, know. That's true. It it's is. made up of all the people from our society. So yeah, that's true. So you can't really, yeah, that's very, very true. And, yeah. and, and we're, and maybe as our society becomes more divided than AA itself, you know, becomes more divided. So, and we, and we have our own, you know, and the way that, that, um, everything is now, like, you know, if you're liberal, you're going to watch this television station or you're going to read this newspaper. If you're conservative, you're going to watch a different television station. You're going to read a different newspaper. Right. Um, you're going to have, you're going to belong to a different Facebook group that, you know, you, that, that, of, so people, people now, instead of just being thrown into having one newspaper that everybody reads or one news station that everybody listens to or just one place where people get together, now people can, get in their own individual silos and they're doing that in AA too. So mm-hmm. AA is just a reflection of what's happening in the greater society. We have our own little silos of AA right. and we have our own little silos of um, of other people in society. And I do think one great thing about AA is that it's supposed to not be, you know, we don't we don't divide ourselves that way. I mean, mm-hmm. and for the most part it, it tends to be true, but I mean, I do feel like there's a fracturing going on within AA. Yeah, there is. There is. I, a few more things on step 6 in the 12 by 12 I wanted to note after we kind of got off track here. That's kind of my fault. But it talks about uh, the only urgent thing is that we make a beginning and keep trying. I thought that's very measured um, advice. Very, very good. And then uh, the only question will be, are we ready? So, I mean, that's kind of boils down what step six all about. Are we entirely ready? Yep. Um, it's suggested that we ought to become entirely willing to aim towards perfection. That goes on what, right. what you were mentioning earlier. And then at the end, it starts to uh, talk about our minds closing against the grace of God. And then it says, delay is dangerous and rebellion may be fatal. It's, yeah, uh, yeah it's like using these fear tactics to scare us into uh, doing what we need to do. And I've just found, I've just found uh, when I was a counselor and working with people, sponsoring them, that Fear almost has never worked. I mean, I'm not saying I've never used it with a sponsee, but it almost, I just don't find that it works, especially with an active alcoholic. I don't think you can scare an active alcoholic into getting sober. It's like, you know, I I have relatives who have some health problems and and you can tell them, as much as you want, like, mm-hmm. oh, you're you're carrying a lot of edema. You're swelling up. It might have had to do with the fact you had two and a half bottles of wine last night. Oh, well, I didn't have that much, or you know, it's like it's. Uh, I, I don't think fear works that well, and I. But I do think being welcoming and inclusive and making people feel comfortable and welcome. Yeah. I do think that does work. I do too. That's the strength of AA when we do that yeah. right. Yep. So what do you think about this discussion of humility in step seven? You know, some of it I was like, wow, this is really great. Um, I do think humility is an important, uh, an important thing, especially for those of us who struggled with addiction. Um, that it's, again, I don't always think that everybody that walks into the room struggling with alcohol, um, is somebody who's just this self, uh, self, just a selfish person just running over everybody in their lives. I mean, some of the people I sponsor are, are kind of the, the, the meeker, lower tone people who are not very assertive. But um, I, I do think humility is an important thing to nurture within ourselves. And I think the community of AA uh, can help foster that within people. And um, just being humble of nature and being of service and caring about other people and being able to put myself in other people's shoes. I mean, I think all that stuff assists me with being more humble and, and having some humility. I don't know. What's your experience? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, 
it's it's uh, coming into AA um, is the first time I ever started thinking about humility. And at my old home group, it was a huge big deal. And it um, the whole so the whole concept of humility has um, weaved its way into the fiber of who I am as a person. And sometimes I don't know. I, sometimes I think it it's. Sometimes I think it's maybe too much because like, especially now with what I'm doing online, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, am I not, am I, am I not being humble here? I mean, why, why do I have to post, you know, that I'm eating sushi on Facebook? <laughs> you know, right, why, right. why, why do I have to, why, why do I think that everybody wants to hear what I think or say or do or whatever? And I don't know. It kind of bugs me sometimes, mm-hmm. um, that. Cause I'm, I used to be a very quiet person. Even before I got to AA, when, even in my drinking, I didn't really know a whole lot of people. I didn't hang out with a lot of people. I just drank, you know, I, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't a social person at all. And then even, um, my first year or two in AA, I was very, you know, quiet. I was not, I was not one that I didn't have a lot of self esteem or whatever. Um, and that, that's not humility in itself, right? But, but then mm-hmm. what happened to me is I got healthy and I started having some good self esteem mm-hmm. and now. Now suddenly I have to balance that self-esteem with not being a total, you know, jerk mm-hmm. um, or, you know, and I, I don't know. I worry about that. So maybe and it might just be my own perception of myself. Maybe other people don't see it that way. But um, yeah, sometimes even when I speak in an AA meeting, it's like I, I feel like, you know, I, I need to make sure I don't don't talk about myself too much. Mm-hmm. But how can you not talk about yourself? Yeah, so I don't know. I, I have a it's something else. But I do believe, I guess, the concept of humility. I mean, I understand what it's saying. Like, like when I when I made that admission that I'm an alcoholic, that was a humbling admission. But it was done from being humiliated. It was done from you know having experiences in my life that just caused me to give up. Mm-hmm. But there's another degree of humility, which means that you know just humility for the working for humility for the sake of humility, not not for any other reason, but just just to be um, have I guess humility being having the right perspective about myself. So in other words, don't I'm not a piece of shit, and I'm not. I'm not a wonderful, you know, I'm not the, the king of the world or whatever. I, I'm just a, I'm just a regular guy, just having the right perspective about who I am and mm-hmm. what I'm doing. That is probably what humility is. And it's probably a good, healthy place to be, I guess. Yeah, very much so. I, I, I agree with you too. Um, once we do get some esteem, I sometimes wonder if, if there's a lot of shame and, and just, I, I don't know, stuff that goes around the room sometimes. It's like, if you start feeling too good about yourself, it's like people are like, Oh, you better be mm-hmm. careful. It's like, it's almost almost like, don't you dare be happy. It's like, I don't know. I there's like you're saying, there's a balance. And I, I've got to bounce between those two things. I got to get out of those extremes where I'm hating myself for something that I didn't even do mm-hmm. versus thinking I'm the greatest person in the room. And I'm trying to tell somebody else how to do it. Mm-hmm. But like you said, all we all have is our own experience. <clears throat> and that's what I have to speak from when I when I talk. If if I if I get into something where I'm telling people how to do something or whatnot, not just saying how I do it and what my experience has been, that's that's where I get in trouble, I think. And I suppose I can get that self-righteousness going about what I feel like I've learned, or I suppose being a counselor before I feel like I'm educated in some of that stuff, but it all has to do with my motive. Like what am I trying to do? Am I trying to prove to people that I know something about something, or am I just trying to 
to share my experience so that it may help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all about where it's coming from. I had a guy the other day, we all went out to coffee and, you know, he never said anything to me after the meeting, which I wouldn't expect him to, but he was somebody who struggled with mental illness in the rooms. And so, I don't know, it, it's, he, I had said at the meeting, somebody was going off about how you shouldn't, you know, use medications in AA and all that stuff. And I stuck up my next share. I mean, it was probably kind of rude, but I said, you know, we need to be really careful what we say about people on medication or not in here because there's some people who practically need to be on something just to not want to end their life right? or to even be able to be in this room and work steps and be able to have fellowship with all of us. And um, I, I, you know, and then he said, uh, Ben, I quoted you the other day in a meeting and I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, I, I use that quote where you said some people need to be on things just to be able to be here and do the deal. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel really good because I stuck up for for what I felt was right and true. And I also felt like I stuck up for what AA says about being on yes, medication. Absolutely. So I, I don't ever want to speak from what I think is right, I guess. But in that case, it was good that I said something because you never know how many people are sitting in the room on an antidepressant or, yeah, you know, maybe some other psych med or, you know, and it's just, it can just alienate people. And I think those people just kind of carefully just shuffle off and disappear one day. And the whole, you know, whole line is, well, they didn't want to do what they wanted to do. It's like, no, I think that tone around the rooms just chases people off eventually. So, um, this, when they were talking about humility and I, they must've thought it was an important thing, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. is there, do you think there's something to, us when we be when we are active in our addictions that something happens to our ego do we become really egocentric to a certain extent i i guess i i think that well maybe we do think about ourselves a lot because we're always having to think about the next fix the next drug the next mm-hmm. the next drink and um how we're gonna get out of this problem or that problem um so I don't know. What do you think? Is there a need to kind of get ourselves into right size to a certain extent when we're first getting clean? Yeah, I do think so. I, I think that looks different for <laughs> everyone. Um, you know, it's like an obsession with self, I think. And for some of us, the obsession with self is trying to tell everybody else they're wrong and we're right. Yeah. And for for others of us, our obsession with self is that you know we think everybody's talking about us or that everybody else is right. right. We're wrong. So right. it's it and there's a certain amount of paranoia that happens when you're an alcoholic or drug addict where you do kind of think that way and you're when you're actively using, don't you? For sure. I mean, <laughs> I can remember even the the ways it would overtake my uh, you know, my day even um yep. even when I was just drinking heavy on a weekend, <laughs> it would be maybe I'd go in Sunday to like a 7-Eleven and buy a soda or something and I'd hand them a $20 bill and my hand would be jittery or shaking yeah. and i'd be like oh crap they surely they noticed and you know most people don't give a shit you know right. i mean it's like they they maybe didn't even notice at all or i didn't even, i wasn't that shaky i just felt shaky inside or it's like that obsession with self and i can remember you know sometimes on a super hungover day it would be like just to get out of the house and go get something to eat it just felt like i i get out and it's like i got to get back home like i just felt so uptight and so nervous it's like that obsession with self so there's definitely something to that, but I think we all come at different angles. Yeah. Getting out of that and getting more humble because sometimes it's like, Ben, nobody gives a shit about you in a good way. I don't right. mean like nobody gives a shit about you. You're a piece of shit, but like right. you're not that freaking important. Right. And that's, that's the great thing about AA too. I can come in and be one of many, you mm-hmm. know, maybe one day I'm having a good day and somebody else is having a bad day and it, and it, it gets me back humble and realizing like, Ben, you know, 
feel fortunate you're having a nice day today. Mm-hmm. You know, not to use somebody else's calamity in that way because I think that's rude, but it's there's something very good that can happen in AA where it just keeps you centered and right-sized. It, it, that's healthy. I definitely think that's healthy and that is humility. Yeah. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. It's just not it's just having the right perspective about yourself and there probably is a need a need for it you know when we first get in there you know i've seen you know um not wanting to judge other people but i've seen varying degrees of um you know egos of people that come into the come into the rooms and that's for sure and that's and that could just be their personality not necessarily their the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction but um i came in um you know you know after having a good five six seven years of some pretty serious drinking. And, um, I think it was just natural for me, um, to always have to think about, think about myself a lot because I was always needing to either hide something from somebody or get that next drink or, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, you know, things are different now. I, I, I don't have to think like that. I, I don't, you know, I can think of other people and I do think about other people and sometimes I'll catch myself doing that and it does kind of surprise me that, mm-hmm. wow, you know, I'm think I'm really actually thinking about and happy about someone else. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> it's probably just being a normal person, but it still kind of surprises me when I do that. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's relieving. Like it, it gets yeah. us out of our own head for a while and, and that, uh, what we're worried about at that moment isn't so important. It's, yeah. And I, I still got to watch that today. Like, um, we've got a new baby and mm-hmm. we're thinking about moving to a different town, getting a different house. And I suppose in AA lingo, my economic security is being threatened. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what we can afford and what we can't afford. Mm-hmm. And, and if I get too obsessed with that, and I have been lately and focusing too much on how that is affecting me, it's, it just eats me up. Mm-hmm. But if, but if I, if I take myself back to, What's good for my family? What does my daughter need? What does my wife need? Yep. And I start putting myself in other people's shoes. It takes the pressure off me a little bit and I can make a healthier decision and not one based out of fear. I mean, it's our decision, not just my decision, but it's it's uh, it, that's something along that same vein there that I need to keep in mind when I'm just obsessing too much about how things are going to affect me. I get in trouble. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree with that. Um. So when you boil down these two steps, step six and seven, the way that I would look at them is, nah, it's not really, you know, even in, in my own experience, I can't say that these were things that I worked. It was not like you, it's not like the step five where there was one day and there was a moment in time where you actually get and you do something. These steps weren't like that at all. Um, these steps were more just, you know, kind of the idea that I'm going to continue on with learning about myself and trying to become a healthier person um, mm-hmm. for the rest of my life is just is just how I see it. And so it's not really um, it's not really it's nothing more than an attitude, I guess, is what it is. So if I were sponsoring someone and we got to step six and seven, I don't know if I would encourage them to do any reading or anything necessarily. I guess it doesn't hurt to read this stuff and know these things, but. I would just talk to him about, you know, just the idea of, you know, carrying on with your recovery for the rest of your life and, and taking, um, some responsibility for your own mental health and, 
and and doing whatever you need to do um, to to uh, be a healthy, happier person. But I wouldn't give too much weight to the steps themselves. Um, these two steps, anyway. Um, actually, you know, and a lot of us joke about this. They're really filler kind of steps. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, they were trying to make an even 12. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that's what they basically did. Now, Bill, I, I remember <clears throat> reading in, um, Not God, um, by Ernest Kurtz. I think they said that when Bill was doing the steps, that he was trying to break them down to their most simple component. And that's why he took like six and made it to 12 because he would try to break them down. But I don't think that's really the case. I think he wanted to have 12, like you have the 12 apostles and the, you know, or 12 is this the magic number, I think. Yeah. That's what yeah. They, they, I think they are filler steps, you know. They're, yeah. And then he, you know, extrapolates on them in the 12 by 12. And But if you look in the big book, there's two paragraphs on these two steps, right? Yep. Total. One paragraph each. Very simple. Yep. And, and one, uh, one of them, like the seventh step, and I didn't even really know it, um, there's the seventh step prayer. There are actually some groups now that actually say the seventh step prayer in their, in their meetings, which I find kind of, kind of bizarre. I was at a meeting yeah. once that did that. I don't know. It just seems weird to me to say a prayer in, in AA language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, for sure. oh yeah, this isn't a religion. <laughs> yeah. Well, think, Let's say I the think... prayer that our founder wrote. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, you don't have to do anything here. This no. isn't a cult, but no. we're going to stare at you and ask you why you didn't after the meeting. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, it's, it's about willingness and then working on things, I think. And, you know, I don't, I, I guess I work these steps. It was even awkward when I went through this with my sponsor the first time. It was like, he didn't really know what the heck to have me do either. No, no, mine didn't, and, didn't either. And <clears throat> so it's, it's, again, I've said this before and I know it's not true for everyone, but the steps kind of happened to me as I stayed in AA. I think after I worked through four and five, it's kind of like you've got this stuff in front of you that yeah. you've learned about yourself. You can't deny it any longer. And and I would say if anything changed from when I came into AA until now, it's that I've gone from kind of being more of a blamer of everything else and looking at everything else wrong in the world. And I still have a tendency to do that. And But turning it back around and realizing that, and I think this is two, three, all, I mean, it's all the way up to this seven, that the only thing we have control over is ourselves and what we can do differently. It doesn't mean that we don't have any power beyond that. I mean, we can get involved politically in the world. We can get involved in, you know, AA. We can get involved in whatever that, mm-hmm. that helps empower us. But mm-hmm. it's it's about turning inward on some level and, and being empowered and realizing just how much my thoughts and my actions in the past have colored how I see the world. Yeah. And that if I can look in the mirror and realize that I can, that I was part of the problem, now I can be part of the solution, right? It, right? it doesn't change until I'm on board. And if I can say anything, that's what AAs helped me to do and continue to do is stay on board with looking at myself, self-reflection and, and being active, like you said, in taking care of myself right? rather than avoiding that. Because I really think that's what I, that's what I did for many, many years, yep. just yep. avoided looking at myself. Yep. And I, I'll also say this. I find at different periods of times I've been in AA. A, now, it's, I'm not blaming AA, mm-hmm. but I wonder if anybody else has ever had this problem. I have wondered, and I think it's been true at different times, if being in AA and being involved in AA has been a continuance of me running away from taking a look at myself sometimes. The process yeah. of AA has helped me take a look at myself. Right. But then, then when I've gotten into active sponsoring of other people, it has been really easy for me to take care of everyone else 
and run away from looking at what I need to take a look at in my own life. And I, I think I think I got in a period of doing that for sure. And I mean, maybe that's ego too, thinking I've got the answers for everyone else. But I think AA can provide a way to, and again, it's not AA's no. fault, but no. a person can be so engrossed in AA that you use it to avoid looking at the very things that the steps are trying to get you to look at. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does make sense. And I, I went through a period of time like that, a lengthy period of time where I would say, I don't know, five, six, seven, several years in AA where, um, I don't think I was really stretching myself or growing. I wasn't, I wasn't challenging myself any, any longer because I was comfortable with, I guess, where I was in my life, which is okay. But I was, I was comfortable with knowing what to say in AA to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing for the longest time. I, and, and I guess it was serving a purpose. I mean, I was doing fine in my life. I mean, life was getting better all the time, but you know, looking back on it, um, I, I knew, I knew how to, um, I knew how to operate in meetings so that people would accept me. And, and the reason I say that, Ben, is because when I stopped doing that, that's when the program really took off for me. So mm-hmm. in other words, the last couple of years since I've been involved with the um, agnostic groups, that's, I've experienced more growth in the last couple of years than I have the, the last seven, eight or so. Because right. now I've, I've, sh- I've shaken off the shackles of, <laughs> of having to, to say things that please people. And instead I'm able to, um, really ask myself what these things mean to me. And I'm able to have some pleasure in seeing other people. Um, get some benefit out of all of this stuff too. So right. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you can, you can just get comfortable. You can go to meetings and you can, you can say whatever you want to <clears> say to, to, you know, you can learn that you can learn the lingo of AA right. pretty quickly. And once you know that lingo, you're in. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I hear what I hear you saying is that you finally got authentic with yourself and yeah. it became authentic for you. And I do, I do think that that somewhere along the lines, no matter how many years we have, this has to become something that we want for ourselves. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I think we, we get in that place, like you're saying, where you walk, walk, and everybody's patting you on the back, and everybody thinks you're a good AA member, but, but it can feel kind of phony sometimes. Mm-hmm. And until it's like becomes ingrained in what, hey, I am doing this because I want to do this, mm-hmm. then it doesn't become real. And that's also, I agree with you. That's what, uh, this, agnostic atheist, you know, little segment of AA has really helped me with too. Like, hey, it's, okay to question this. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the past, maybe if I would have started questioning, I would have just said, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. I must right. not be. And I've heard this from some dogmatists too. Well, I guess if you were able to quit just through some, you know, since you don't believe everything that's written in that book and you're able to quit just through some bad circumstances in your life, you must not have been a real alcoholic to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, no, it's like you can, you can deny or find some of this lacking after plenty of investigation and still and still want to be here and still want right. to be a part of AA and still want to help people and still want to continue to help yourself. It doesn't have, again, that's that all or nothing thinking. Either you buy into this 100% lock, stock and barrel or get the hell out of here, you right. know? And I've run into this. I went to my home group a couple of weeks ago and um, I haven't been back there since. It's my old home group. But uh, I got chided after the meeting um, for not being there for newcomers more often. And it, and it was just like, you know, a lot has changed in my life 
lately, and I'm tired of feeling guilty for everything right. I do or don't do. And so that was another moment where it's like my life has become more authentically mine. And right. I've got a child now. I've got a wife. And look, I'm, I don't go to as many AA meetings mm-hmm. as I used to. I still be. go. Well, and I mean, on some level, I know, too, that if I need to be there emotionally for my family yep. or to help raise a decent daughter who or I mean, I might be helping create the next alcoholic, you know, if I'm not there to help. I well, mean, that's as that far is as I'm concerned. Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, that that's the purpose of AA is so that you can do that. I right. mean, I did the same thing. I went um, after 10 years of sobriety. I went back to college and I ended up getting my degree. I got two degrees. And during that time. And I was dating a lot more too. During that time, I wasn't going to as many meetings as I was the previous 10 years. And that's cool because I, that first 10 years, I was preparing myself to build a life for myself that I have today. And I needed to do these things. I needed to, I needed to read and study and meet people outside of AA. And it was a, it was a really good time for me, but that was working the program out mm-hmm. in the real world, doing things that I couldn't do when I was drinking. And that's what you're doing now. You know, you're, yeah. you're taking everything that you got from the program during all this time. And now you're putting that into being a father and a husband yeah. and providing a home for your daughter and a life and building a life. That's what it's all about. I mean, mm-hmm. you could hide an AA, you know, you mm-hmm. could go to AA and say all the great things that everybody likes to hear and then neglect your family. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. you know, you got to do what comes first. And I, so absolutely you're doing the right thing. And, um, someday you might go, you know, find yourself, um, going back to more meetings again. You know, uh, mm-hmm. that's what happened with me after I, um, you know, I got married and everything and, and life changed and I got started getting more involved with AA to whereas now I'm, I'm pretty involved, but yeah. Yeah. I, you just made me think of something. Have you seen the film? Thanks for sharing. No, I haven't. It's uh, it's got Mark Ruffalo in it. It wasn't a great film, but it was okay. And it's got Tim Robbins, and he uh, Mark Ruffalo is a sex addict. And I oh, I, I remember I that keep, came out. Yeah, and uh, Tim Robbins, I think, is his AA sponsor, and yeah. it's kind of a uh, Tim Robbins character. Like, is really big at being Mister AA, but he's not very good. And maybe he's Mister SA, you know, like uh-huh, sex addict uh-huh. synonymous or whatever. But um, it's kind of about how he's ignored his own family on some level too. Uh-huh. So it was. There's some real good aspects to that movie about the the nitty gritty of what kind of goes on in mm-hmm. in twelve step recovery. I'd, I'd recommend that, that to anybody listening. I'll definitely watch that. I'll yeah. definitely watch but that. It certainly was not a great movie, but it, yeah. but it was uh, yeah, very decent some... that way. Oh, cool! But you made me think about that because there's 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 a way to use anything in an unhealthy manner, even sure. something that's as great as AA for sure. helping us, you know. And I think religion too. I know my mom, you know, really got involved in religion after uh, it. it I don't know. We had a couple of losses in my family and my mom went towards religion. Yeah. And uh, I felt kind of abandoned by that. But, you know, she thought she was doing a great thing mm-hmm. and that's what she needed at the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, I needed some more nurturing and, and parental attention than she was able to give at that time. So yeah. we can use anything that's seemingly good to to not, not do our best sometimes. Right. And I, I definitely, I've been confronted with that myself with having a child. Sure. It's like my priorities are changing. Absolutely. And they should be. So, So. well, I've enjoyed this. Um, So our next one was going to be steps eight, 
and nine. Maybe we'll do them both together again. Um, yeah. Again, these are steps that are divided up for no reason. <laughs> you could right. actually, you could do the steps eight and nine in one step, I think. Anyway. Right. Anyway. Well, it, it was interesting today too. I felt like we struggled to even talk about these two steps a little bit, but then when we start talking about personal stuff, it's like no problem, but it's like, yeah. it shows how awkward these two steps kind of are, I think. Yeah. And I think everybody, if they're honest, will say the same thing that you said when you're, you're when you approach your sponsor, they don't really know what to say about how to do these steps. My, my sponsor said, um, uh, read the read the twelve and twelve and help other people. <laughs> <It's> okay, <Yeah. laughs> say the seven step prayer. You're done. Just oh, like yeah. the process. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go to a meeting um, next week here in Kansas City. We got some fun. Uh, Roger C is coming down. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, we're having our anniversary for our group, our two year anniversary, and we're having Roger come down to talk about the history of secularism in AA. And we sent out flyers to all the different AA groups in Kansas City. And I hope that they come. I'd like to get the traditional AAers out here to meet Roger and learn about secular AA. Um, So we'll be interested to see what happens. I've got it on my calendar, but it's always a last second decision whether I can make it or not. So you may see me. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. And I think uh, maybe a friend of mine from Omaha is coming too. Well, cool. Very cool. All right, Ben, I will talk to you later. All right, John. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. We have a very special episode coming up for you next week when uh, Roger C. will be in Kansas City, Missouri to give a talk about the history of secularism in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think you'll enjoy this one. He's given the talk before, but he's going to put a special spin on it this time around. We'll see you next week in Kansas City, Mo.